0: Hey everyone, welcome back to another episode of the Brawn Body Health and Fitness Podcast. Joining me today is Dr. Joseph O'Neill, also known as Jake O'Neill, and today we're diving into compartment syndrome. So in particular, Dr. O'Neill and I are going to discuss diagnosis and clinical presentation and picture of compartment syndrome. Dr. O'Neill is going to discuss various surgical considerations, and we're going to chat a little bit rehab considerations for compartment syndrome as well. So it's a great episode that really dives into a lot of detail, especially on the diagnostic and surgical side. I know you're going to love this episode. Jake, welcome to the podcast. I'm super excited to work with you today. Thanks, Dan. It's great to be a part of it. For people who aren't familiar with you, or maybe they've never heard of Rothman Orthopedics, would you mind filling them in a little bit about who you are and all the amazing things you're doing up there?
1: Yeah, so we're a big uh, orthopedic practice, um, primarily based out of the greater Philadelphia area. Um, we um, have well over 100 uh, physicians, combination of orthopedic surgeons, but also, also non-operative uh, sports specialists, non-operative spine uh, physicians who are primarily trained in physical medicine and rehabilitation. Um And, you know, our kind of core uh, or central part of the practice is based out of the Philadelphia region with extension down into South Jersey and the South Jersey shore. Um, But um, we have since kind of uh, spread our wings and extended into the New York City market, North Jersey, as well as down in Florida and primarily the Orlando area. So it's it's a practice that has significantly grown, particularly over the last, uh, you know, five to 10 years. Um, but primarily, or, you know, we're essentially an orthopedic practice only, um, we are private practice, but very heavily, um, involved in academics, uh, within the Philadelphia area, we're heavily involved with, uh, an affiliate with Thomas Jefferson university. So we kind of consider ourselves like a private DEMIC model. So we're private practice, but, um, heavily involved in academics and research and teaching, which I think kind of helps us stay on the cutting edge of, uh, treatments.
0: Yeah, definitely. And not to mention, you're one of the best in the country. Um, And, you know, you kind of missed the most, um, one of the most important parts about that, Jake, is how you fit into that whole thing. Because, you know, (laughs) I can speak from what I've seen, you're a pretty impressive surgeon. Um, You know, you're in my top list as far as foot and ankle guys go. So, um, you know, tell us a little bit about your practice and what you do.
1: Yeah. So I'm uh, in my fifth year of practice. Um, I started in 2018. So just about uh, September. So just about to start my sixth year in practice, I trained at Jefferson um, Hospital in Philadelphia with um, a lot of the Rothman physicians and then did my fellowship in Baltimore uh, with Lou Shone, Greg Guyton, uh, Stu Miller and Jake Wisbeck at Mercy, excuse me, at uh, Union Memorial. Um, and then came back to Rothman, uh, immediately following fellowship and have been there since. Um, uh, so, um, as you mentioned, I am a foot and ankle specialist. Uh, I do a lot of general trauma call though. So, you know, I'll essentially do anything involving the lower extremity when it comes to trauma. Um, but from an elective standpoint, uh, my focus is foot and ankle, um, and, uh, you know, I got into it, you know, I think I liked everything in orthopedics for the most part, but I always loved the variety in foot and ankle. You have a variety of patients, a variety of conditions that you can treat, and it, it you have a little bit of everything that all the different fields in orthopedics offer you, uh, all bottled into one. Um, so um, it's, a, it's a field that always keeps you on your toes, um, and, um, and I really like the variety. But I think also I had some really uh, great... Uh, teachers that I learned from, um, specifically Steve Raiken, who um, recently retired. Uh, Dave Pedowitz is is um, my um, division chief at Rothman. He's the head of the foot and ankle department. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think you know your predecessors and your teachers go a long way in terms of influencing you. And those two definitely had a huge influence on my decision to enter uh, or to specialize in foot and ankle surgery.
0: Yeah, yeah, no, that's incredible. And, you know, that whole region is very difficult to understand at first. There's so many little bones and little joints and structures kind of tucked in that area. There's there's a lot going on, and I feel like people don't often recognize just how important the foot and ankle are until it's injured. And it's like, oh, yeah, every step I take, every single thing I do, I kind of need this. Um, it, it's funny, you know, we were talking just a few minutes ago before we started recording, about how we feel like a lot of people just kind of miss the importance of the foot and ankle and a lot of things that they do, whether that's training or just, you know, day-to-day life. Uh, is that something that you find a lot yourself on the clinical side of things as well? Or
1: Yeah, without a doubt. Um, you know, as you mentioned, you can't get anywhere without your feet and it, it is, it can be an unforgiving structure. I mean, like you said, it's a, it's a multitude of, of bones and joints that can be very unforgiving from the standpoint of injuries. And, um, you know, obviously you're not going to get anywhere with your feet. And I see countless numbers of patients who come to see me, obviously, cause they're having pain in their foot, um, or their ankle. Uh, but then incidentally they'll know, well, you know, my knee, you know, has started to bother me and it may not even be on that side. It may be the other side or my hip or my low back and everything is connected. So you start getting a problem in the foot and you start to alter your gait to try to accommodate that. You're like, Oh, I don't, you know, I don't think it's anything worth seeing anyone about. And then you start to alter your gait. Well, then your knees bothering you, and then your low back follows, and then it's just you know this snowball effect. And then you're trying to you know figure out what what happened first. It's like the chicken and the egg argument, and it can go both ways. You know, someone with a knee problem could end up with a foot problem, but certainly, you know, the foot is you know that's what meets the ground for for us as humans. And so, any little bit of problem there, and if it's unrecognized and untreated certainly will have uh, as much of a downstream effect on the rest of the body, particularly the lower body, uh, as anywhere else.
0: Yeah, I mean, essentially, movement starts from the ground up. So it makes sense to build from the ground up, um, since that's how we interact with the world and engage in things. And, you know, I think the hypothetical question, as you kind of alluded to, is, you know, is it movement in a different mean matter uh movement in a different like method that we're used to that causes pain or is it pain that causes us to move differently and I you know,
1: yeah i think it can be a combination of both honestly but yeah. I think a
0: lot of times it's you get
1: start getting some discomfort and whether you realize it or not you know you so you know you start to subconsciously alter the way you're walking and that can have a significant effect a domino effect uh, upstream through the throughout the lower extremity and into the back
0: Yeah, yeah, no, definitely. And, um, you know, again, I think a lot of injuries, um, not all of them, but a lot of them can be managed or prevented with adequate training or, you know, prehab or, you know, whatever kind of injury prevention term you want to throw at it. And that's something that I just see often missed at the foot and ankle complex in general. You know, I don't see a whole lot of strength and conditioning guys you know, addressing like toe extensor strength or like toe extensor range of motion, uh, you know, when they're doing their programs. Like, you know, we focus on big groups like the quads, the hips, you know, the things that are going to really propel us forward. But in reality, I like to think that the foot is just as important to all of those things as well. Um, And I, I think it's funny too, because we kind of like train the foot with these different devices, like you know, uh, foam pads or you know, different like stability ball type things that effectively remove our proprioceptive input into the ground, um, and then expect for us to go onto a like level surface and somehow you know have a improved ability to perform on a surface that's completely different than we were just like training on or practicing on, mm-hmm. if that makes sense.
1: Yeah, yeah, for sure. Yeah, I mean, I think, uh, you know, uh, training and, uh, you know, like you said, it, it focuses on, um, you know, I, I will sometimes call it like the sexy stuff, you know, <laughs> you know, and it's kind of like you, you hear about it in the sports world, too, you know, especially with the, you know, the ACL epidemic, uh, you know, especially, you know, in the female, po- young female population, but also males and how so many of these patients have an imbalance between their quadriceps and their hamstrings because everyone wants to, you know, the, to focus on the strong quads, but no one's really focusing on strengthening their hamstrings. Um, and for that matter, stretching, I mean, you know, we all, everyone's trying to get stronger and faster, not necessarily focusing on stretching. And so I see so many injuries that, you know, almost undoubtedly, uh, result from inadequate stretching, um, particularly involving the posterior chain and, you know, the heel cords, on up through the hamstrings, uh, you know, it's just every, almost everyone I see is, is tight there. Um, and so I, I, I couldn't tell you how many times per day when I'm in the office, um, emphasizing the importance of of stretching their Achilles and, and for that matter, their hamstrings too, because it can make such a huge difference, just regular stretching, uh, on, um, you know, your body's fun, specifically the lower extremities function.
0: Yeah, yeah, definitely. There's a, there's a lot that can be prevented by the right care and right attention to detail on a lot of those things, like you just mentioned. Um, there's some things that I find kind of developing athletes over time. And I think there's arguments that maybe they could be prevented. And there's also cases where they really can't be prevented there. Um, you know, when it comes to something like, say, compartment syndrome, I, I've seen cases that kind of develop like acutely. Um, just in response to a certain event or trauma. And then I've seen some that kind of develop over time and, you know, response to like chronic exertion and that sort of thing. Um, but, you know, for those listening, maybe they haven't heard of compartment syndrome before. Maybe they're not really sure how to define it. How would you kind of explain compartment syndrome to someone, Jake?
1: Um, yeah, so compartment syndrome, you know, we we see it enough, it's a very serious problem, particularly in the traumatic or acute setting that you alluded to. There, you know, we, we think of it in two different ways. There's the acute uh, traumatic compartment syndrome that can develop, and then there's the compartment syndrome that can develop more in a chronic exertional state. So starting with, you know, kind of acute and traumatic, I mean, usually it's associated with, with some kind of injury, whether that's just a soft tissue crush injury or, um, you know, a bad bony injury. Uh, and there are certain types of injuries that we have a very high, uh, or have a high association with it developing. But essentially what it, it entails is, All the muscles, no matter where they are in your body, but lower leg, upper leg, um, in the upper extremity, uh, they're all isolated into compartments. And um, each compartment has a different number of muscles in them. Um, But let's take the lower leg, for instance, because that's generally the most common area we see compartments in or develop, both from an acute traumatic standpoint, but also uh, chronic exertional. There's four different compartments. And so what they are is just essentially what it what it implies. It's a compartment where you have a number of different muscles that are all kind of together inside this, uh, layer of tissue called what we call fascia. Um, the fascia is this very like hard, it's, it's, it's soft tissue. So it's pliable, but it is, um, very strong. Um, and it will allow for some swelling, but, you know, at some point it has its limits. Um, so if you can imagine, um, you know, trying to stuff, you know, a lot of things say into um, a shopping bag, you know, at some point that shopping bag can accommodate so much, but then ultimately uh, you're going to start to crush some of your groceries um, if you're trying to put too much in it. And so what happens is, uh, and again, kind of starting with the acute traumatic situation, uh, something has happened to create a significant amount of swelling. Uh, It could be that there's bleeding going on, uh, it could be just a really bad crush injury or a bad bony injury, but whatever has happened has led to a significant amount of swelling. And so what's happening is the muscles are swelling up and swelling up and swelling up to such an extent um, that the fascia has reached its limits, but the muscles are still continuing to swell and the pressure is building up within these compartments and all of the muscles, all of the nerves um, within that compartment are relying on blood flow coming in. Uh, to them so that they can continue to survive. And what happens is the pressure becomes so great that it chokes off the blood supply uh, to those structures. Um, The nerves being the most sensitive to that um, disruption of blood supply, um, but the muscles soon to follow. uh, And obviously if you choke off nerves that are innervating the muscles, then you've lost the muscle function. And so what happens is uh, you lose this blood supply because the pressure has essentially kinked off the arteries that are supplying the blood. So for instance, if we're focusing on the anterior compartment of a lower leg, uh, one of the most sensitive signs for diagnosing uh, compartment syndrome uh, and getting into it early is simply taking the big toe and moving it up and down and specifically stretching it into a flexed position. So we're calling that passive stretch, and specifically of the EHL, uh, the extensor long longus tendon, and something as simple as that could cause a patient who's in the setting of compartment syndrome to essentially want to jump out of bed in pain. So they get pain out of proportion to relatively innocuous things, and that's the most sensitive sign to look for because other um, uh, hallmark symptoms, um, you know, they talk about the P's, you know, paresthesias, you know, pain out of proportion is one of them, but paresthesias you know we were always taught once paresthesias which is essentially a fancy way of saying tingling and, and the development of numbness once that has set in you know a lot of there's some irreversible damage that has already uh, potentially set in and so the horse may be out of the barn there um so um obviously pressure is another thing you know these are generally extremities that are very swollen and and you know almost rock hard to the touch um You know, but it is a condition, especially in the acute and traumatic setting. It's one of those things that if you're suspecting someone has it, then you may, you got to go in and treat it because waiting on it uh, can have irreversible damage and consequences, uh, such as foot drop, uh, which is permanent, uh, you know. um, And so um, it is a a devastating condition. It it is uh, the source of unfortunately many lawsuits in the orthopedic world because. Um, it's a condition that um, if left unrecognized and untreated, um, will cause lifelong disability. And so this is a middle of the night, you get a call about this, you're going right into the hospital and you're not messing around. Uh, you're gonna get ramped right to the OR uh, to open up those compartments and allow more of that swelling to occur uh so that those blood vessels are not getting kinked off um uh as much as they are um with the with the fascia being intact. Um, and so, um, like I said, the lower leg is where we see it most commonly and we alluded to it earlier, but there's also the, the phenomenon of, of chronic exertional compartment syndrome, which that is not in the acute traumatic, um, setting that, that's something that's more something that has kind of developed over time. We mostly see it in patients in their twenties into their early thirties, Uh, but it can happen in any age group, but that's typically where we see it most commonly. Uh, These are typically athletic individuals who during the course of their attempts to work out and advance their physical activities, start to develop debilitating pain. And a lot of it can be the same symptoms as someone who has acute traumatic compartment syndrome, but maybe to a lesser severity. So they're not necessarily writhing in bed in discomfort, but Again, we'll focus on the lower leg. Um, They develop pain to the point where they have to stop doing what what they're doing. Most commonly, something like running. Um, But they will also get associated numbness um, because, again, for that same reason, some of the nerves are getting uh, a little bit choked off. They're not tolerating the pressure of the compartments well. Either that's the case, or the blood supply to the nerves has been. Um, uh, diminished to some extent, and nerves are very sensitive to any level of uh, change in their environment. Uh, Most commonly where patients will feel that is kind of on the top of their foot and in between the first and second toes, but it can really happen anywhere. Um, But um, And then ultimately once they sit down and rest, the symptoms resolve. So it's not something that typically bothers them at rest, although the numbness and tingling uh, just as easily as it can start up it can take a long time to resolve. So uh, a lot of times patients will come in saying, you know, they, they rest for a few minutes and their pain subsides, but they still have this lingering tingling or numbness. Um, and so um, it's, a, it's, it's a diagnosis that generally from the history alone, just talking to a patient, uh, you, you develop a sense right away of what's going on. Um, some patients uh, I've had, including one that uh, a patient that you and I have shared, um, we will have a family history of it. Now that's not necessarily um, uh, a, a common thing, but um, I have seen patients where uh, parents uh, have had it. Um, and, um, and so there's probably, there may be some genetic component just in terms of how the makeup of their musculature and their compartments is that predisposes them to that problem. But uh, most of the time it's, it, it, there's, it, it, it shouldn't, be seen as something that has a genetic predisposition to it, but it can. Um, And so history is very important. Talking with patients, getting an idea of of what they've been experiencing, uh, what predisposes them to get these symptoms, what allows it to improve. Um, This is not something, you know, a lot of times when patients come in and see me, they're automatically going to get x-rays. So, you know, we'll oftentimes have x-rays, but you're not going to really see anything on an x-ray. I've had patients come into me with million dollar workups. They've had MRIs of their legs, their feet, their spine. Um, You know, they've had EMGs done, which are nerve studies where they get stuck with needles up and down the legs and trying to figure out what's going on. All of that stuff, generally speaking, is not going to give you any sense as to whether or not they're experiencing chronic exertional compartment syndrome. Uh, They're unnecessary studies to get. Now, the one case where you may want to get an MRI is if you're suspecting that maybe there's like some mass lesion or mass effect on a nerve, if it's specifically if it's a focal finding, like it's not just like their whole leg or the whole foot hurts, but it's a specific finding involving a specific nerve. In some cases, something like a ganglion cyst could be pushing on the nerve. And so if you're suspicious of it, it's not wrong to get the MRI, but if you're getting an MRI to di- you're not gonna get an MRI, I should say, to diagnose chronic exertional compartment syndrome because it's just not gonna show you anything. So the only reason to get an MRI would be if you're suspecting that there's something pushing or pinching on a nerve. Um, really the best way to diagnose chronic exertional compartment syndrome is to do um, compartment testing uh, In, um, in like, and what we do with that. And, and usually you wanna find a physician who is well-versed in this. Um, I have partners that I will send patients to to be tested um, but what they do is they'll have the patient, you know, exercise for a period of time. Um, and they'll measure their compartments prior to their exercise, um, have them build up, you know, get into a strenuous, um, run. And then, you know, especially if the patient reports that they've started to develop the symptoms, they'll stop the exercise, wait a minute, remeasure the compartment pressures, and then look at it again at five minutes after the cessation of exercise, and there's certain parameters that have been defined um, by studies that were done in the distant past that kind of we use as markers as to whether or not they truly have uh, compartment syndrome. Um, before I get into those numbers, the way which we do that does is you know not something that patients get super excited about. It involves sticking needles into the legs, and again, we'll focus more on the lower leg because that's where we see this far by far the most commonly. Um, And so there's four compartments in the lower leg. And so that involves sticking the needles into four different places. These are specific needles that have like a pressure transducer uh, associated with them uh, that can give you a pressure reading. And so um, what we look for is when we measure these compartments at rest, um, we're looking for a measurement below 15 millimeters of mercury. Anything above that reading uh, would be considered consistent with chronic exertional compartment syndrome. And then we look at it, or concerning at least for it, because again, that's a resting measurement. So we do have to kind of take that with a grain of salt. We're more looking at how do the compartment pressures change following the initiation of strenuous exercise. So a one minute post-exercise, if that number has jumped above 30, then that's you know considered diagnostic. And at five minutes after the cessation of activity, uh, 20 millimeters of mercury is the cutoff. So again, if it's above that, then we consider that uh, consistent with the diagnosis of chronic exertional compartment syndrome. So like I said, we're measuring four different compartments. So just, you can have it in one compartment, you can have it in two, you can have it in three, you could have it in all four. Um, and so what I, I don't necessarily, I focus on what the resting uh, tension or med- pressure is only as a way to kind of help me gu- guide my interpretation of what the post-exercise measurements are. Um, and so I'll look at both the one minute and the five minute exercise post-exercise measurements. And if either one of them are elevated, then I will, you know, consider that diagnostic of of the condition. Um, and you know this is something that you know listen you could try to manage this non-surgically but it's very unreliable uh you know you know sometimes people talk about like you know myofascial you know therapy or deep massage but at this at the end of the day nothing's really changing the overall architecture of that lower leg the architecture of the individual compartments the pliability of the fascia to some extent you know i you know i don't know that anything's necessarily going to change that to a significant degree and so Non-surgical management is, in my opinion, pretty unreliable. It's, it's one of the few things that, you know, I'll tell a patient, even if they haven't tried it, uh, you know, I, I, I'm not going to make them try it uh, prior to giving them the option of surgical intervention. And so um, with the surgery, what we do is we identify, okay, what compartments are the problem? And I do want to make sure that that matches up with the patient's reported symptoms, and as long as that's the case, we take, we bring them to the operating room. It's an outpatient procedure. Uh, I am not opposed to operating on both legs at a time. It's very common to see patients come in and both of their legs are pretty much equally affected. So I'm not opposed to doing both at the same time. Um, and we basically make incisions over overlying, whichever compartments are the problem. And so, like I said, in the lower leg, there's four compartments. You have your anterior compartment, a lateral compartment, and then two posterior compartments, one that's deep and one that's superficial. Um, we gain access to the, um, the posterior compartments, both deep and superficial through a medial incision. That's kind of centered over the mid aspect of the lower leg. Whereas if we're looking to attack the anterior and lateral compartments, that's through an incision over the lateral aspect of the lower leg. Once again, kind of mid aspect of the leg. There are some surgeons out there who will do this endoscopically. Um, and then there are some uh, surgeons who will be able, uh, to do a release, of all four compartments, just through an isolated lateral incision. Um, I, I think one of the biggest issues with the surgeries in terms of incomplete relief of symptoms is an incomplete release of the fascia. So this is not something that I've really um, uh, developed a strong desire to learn endoscopic releases. Obviously, you know, the, the benefit of uh, less in theory less risk of wound complications because you have smaller incisions is appealing, but uh, you, know, I, I do worry about you know how good of a release are you getting. Even I've seen even patients who have had open releases through, you know maybe the surgeons will make a couple small incisions, one up higher in the lower leg, and one down distal. You do wonder, you know, sometimes, did they really adequately release the entire compartment um, because you can see ref- uh, cases uh, of recurrence. Uh, and so um, I uh, I'm a bit, uh, will release uh, almost uh, close to the entirety of the compartment. You do have to, certain compartments, you have to be very mindful of certain uh, important structures to identify and make sure that you don't inadvertently injure uh, during the process of your compartment releases. One of the most common structures is the superficial perineal nerve, which provides the sensation of the dorsum of the foot, uh, and it, it uh, perforates the fascia. The fascia um, in the intralateral aspect of the lower leg, uh, oftentimes perforating through the, um, uh, fascia of the anterior compartment, but it can also emanate through the raffae that divides the interior and the lateral compartments. So you do need to be very mindful. I always find that nerve, um, and, uh, make sure that I'm very careful uh, to work around it, um, when I'm doing my releases. Um, and sometimes what you'll also see is, is some herniations of the fascia. So the patient has developed like a herniation in their fascia, which is essentially an opening and their muscle kind of herniates through it. And so if that's the case, I'll just kind of just complete that herniation to fully release, uh, the compartment. So, um, you know, I kind of rambled on there, but, um, you know, I can certainly, uh, get into like my, um, uh, recovery, uh, uh, if you, if that is something, you know, kind of to, you know, bring this to a close. And then certainly if there's specific questions, we could, uh, you know, kind of obviously hit them.
0: Yeah. You covered so many great things there, Jake, and just to kind of recap a little bit. So your cut score for, um, you know, diagnosing compartment syndrome was a 30 millimeter mercury change shortly after exercise. And then five minutes, uh, afterwards, it was like a 20 millimeter, uh, cut score, um, you talk yeah, and, about it's, and it's and it's it's really an absolute value. Um, you know, they talk about like pressure
1: measurements in the acute traumatic setting, yep. um, where we use the you know the, what we call we call a striker needle which, um, to measure compartments. Um, and that's where we look more at like the 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 delta or the change in the compartment pressure relative to the diastolic blood pressure. Uh, However, my argument has always been if you feel like you need to to put a striker needle into someone in the acute traumatic setting, you know, don't waste your time, they need to be released. And so but technically, the textbook answer is, yeah, there's certain measurements that you're looking at in terms of what the compartment's measuring relative to what their diastolic blood pressure is. But when we're talking about chronic exertional compartment syndrome, we're just focused on absolute values in terms of the pressure. We're not necessarily comparing it to their blood pressure or anything like that or looking at change per se. It's more just, hey, did it jump above 30 at one minute post exercise or did it, is, is it staying above 20 um, five minutes after the uh, cessation of exercise?
0: Right, right. And then you mentioned, too, about, you know, the passive stretch on the uh, first toe being one of your key indicators. You mentioned the uh, five Ps there, pain, pallor, paresthesias, paralysis, and pulselessness. Um, and you mentioned a little bit about the muscle herniations as well in the surgical standpoint. I've never felt one myself, but I've heard of people claiming to be able to palpate herniations on certain exams. Um, I I've never like felt that myself, but I wasn't sure if that was something you felt like on a patient, like anterior tibia area or anything like that.
1: Yeah. I mean, it's not super common, um, where we see it, where I, at least I've seen it most commonly is right around where the SPN, uh, the superficial perineal nerve, um, uh, comes through, pierces the fascia of the anterior compartment. Uh, or if it's sometimes it'll pierce through the fascia of the lateral compartment or through that RAFA that divides the anterior and the lateral compartments. Uh, it's funny you ask that because literally it's not common. So I don't see it very often, but literally today um, I operated on a patient. She's a 39 year old who's had issue symptoms for um, over 10 years. Uh, it started when she was training for a marathon uh, and just never quite subsided. Now, she's not like a heavy duty runner at this stage in her life. But it has interfered with her ability to to be as active as she would like. And she had this was not an issue of chronic exertional compartment syndrome because her her findings were focal to the superficial perineal nerve. But on her exam, just feeling down her leg, uh, as you got to basically the distal aspect of the lateral side of the anterior compartment, there was a noticeable lump there, but it was a soft lump. And that's wh- that's correlated where her symptoms were developing, and she had radiation up approximately along the course of the superficial perineal nerve. And so she had come to me; she was referred to me by a local sports surgeon who had previously ordered an MRI. Which, you know, the MRI showed like a questionable herniation of the chair. It certainly wasn't dramatic. It was it was more appreciable on her physical exam. Um, and so she, I actually operated on her today. Um, because her symptoms were refractory, took conservative measures, um, opened her up. And sure enough, she, she had a fascial defect. It was impressively swollen distal to where that compression was. And then proximally was uh, appeared more normal. And so we uh, essentially just released uh, that fascia uh, to kind of release all compression on the nerve as far up as I could go, uh, kind of tracing it all the way to where it kind of dives deeper into the anterior compartment of the lower leg. So this wasn't necessarily a, an issue of compartment syndrome, but it was a fascial herniation where there was a defect in the fascia and anytime she tried to get do something strenuous, the muscles obviously swell, they get bigger. And it was just causing even more choking off of that nerve, which was already getting choked off because the muscle was coming through that herniation as was the nerve. And the nerve was getting pinched against this hard fibrous um, edge of where the fascia was still intact. And, you know, some people will talk about like, do you try to repair that herniation? Um, Specifically when there's nerve issues, if that nerve is getting pinched there, I am not a fan of repairing that hernia because um in all likelihood you're not going to get an improvement of their nervous issues and maybe you may actually worsen it so uh i just i will release uh, and essentially make that herniation a little bigger but it will be less focal and so therefore uh, in theory it should be less symptomatic
0: yeah that's interesting wow i didn't even know that. we we talked yeah. before this and uh you know we didn't even know we had a like plan for that that's awesome yeah uh,
1: yeah like i said uncommon But you'll, it'll, it'll just, it'll feel that little focal area of protuberance. Um, And, you know, it's, you know, sometimes the patient may or may not have something similar on the other side if it's, um, but oftentimes it's, it's, um, it's like a unilateral finding, but um, not common, but your physical exam is kind of the most sensitive uh, thing uh, in terms of diagnosing it. Like I said, this patient came with an MRI, it was very unimpressive. Um, but if you had even further doubts, ultrasound is another great modality to utilize, um, to kind of further investigate something like along those lines.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. I think having the ability to get like real quick musculoskeletal ultrasound, get a real time image is certainly a game changer there. Um, I also like how you touched on the various incision sites and the various, um, means of incisions. So, um, whether that be opening everything up kind of like you mentioned you do versus the endoscopic and that sort of thing. Um, I'm curious if you do your full open procedure to fully release pressure from the compartments um, over time, things are going to heal, but fascia as a connective tissue, uh, it's got proprioceptive qualities to it as well. Do you see any kind of long standing implications from a fully open compartment syndrome uh, fasciotomy or surgery uh, from kind of disrupting that fascia, like any long-term things from a proprioceptive or other fascial quality thing? Um, yeah, I mean, it's a good question. Year. I
1: do get asked that by patients. I mean, personally, this, is, this isn't like a, a, a terribly common problem. So, uh, you know, again, uh, we'll, we'll, I'll say this with a grain of salt, but, uh, or you can take this with a grain of salt, but I have not seen that to be the case um, personally. Um, but maybe it it is it is there and I'm just not recognizing it, or patients aren't recognizing it. Um, but especially like I mentioned, these are generally young athletic patients. The chronic exertional compartment syndrome, again, we'll focus more on that. Um, so I am a big believer in in having them do physical therapy because I do believe it can help them get back to their desired activities more quickly. Less risk for re-injury, like you said. If there is any loss of proprioceptive um, uh, ability, you know, potentially doing PT can help to restore some of that. Like I said, I haven't necessarily appreciated that, um, but uh, maybe it is it is happening, and I'm just not recognizing it.
0: Yeah, yeah. I um, I've been kind of diving into the fascia world a lot more lately. Shout out to the Rood Rock guys, um, the fascia training specialists. Um, And it's really fascinated me me how, you know, a lot of our training, we kind of forget that. But in the surgery-like compartment syndrome, fascia is kind of the name of the game. So I've kind of always been interested by the longstanding implications there. Um, But ultimately, I think you're right. I think that the body itself has an incredible ability to regenerate, repair, and rebuild. And, you know, what once was, you know, quote-unquote broken or traumatic your body's going to find a way to rebuild it and replenish and get back to where you wanted to be before. Uh, At least most of the time it does. I think there are some rare cases in the conversation of compartment syndrome where other nerve entrapments or arterial entrapments can develop as well. And some of those have irreversible effects, if I remember correctly.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, for sure. I mean, it's You know, you, your physical exam goes a long way in terms of detecting if there's any concern for specific nerve entrapments. Like I said, you know, the anterior compartment is the most common compartment when we're dealing with chronic exertional compartment syndrome. So, like I said, that's the compartment where I'm always looking, finding the superficial perineal nerve when I'm releasing that compartment because that's probably the most commonly compressed nerve. But we do, I do see a number of patients during the course of a year that have um, symptoms consistent with compression or entrapment of the common perineal nerve at the level of a fibular neck. So I probably do between five and 10, you know, probably more close to the line of just a handful, but patients who have that, um, those are patients that I do send for an EMG. Now that EMG may not be super diagnostic, but I like to have that diagnostic information at my disposal before I take them to the operating room. But usually it's a diagnosis of based on their clinical exam. Um, And essentially, it's a a surgery that involves releasing, there's multiple fascial septations that can create an environment of compression of the common perineal nerve um, further up the leg around the fibular neck. Um, And so I will do those releases. Again, that's kind of a different entity than the chronic exertional compartment syndrome, um, but not too dissimilar in terms of patient's symptoms and, um, you know, how I, and, you know, what I do to to rehabilitate those patients postoperatively.
0: And you mentioned too, on the outcome side, that there's a chance that compartment syndrome can reoccur, but um, having a tendency to open all of the compartments and get a full release tends to reduce that risk. I don't know if you know any numbers off the top of your head, but what's the, like, recurrence rate, I would say for some, uh, some type of compartment syndrome, bearing no activity modification and return to where someone was prior to uh, surgery?
1: Yeah, so, um, you know, generally with the literature, and it's not something that's been like super extensively studied over the course of time. Um, but recurrence rates are, you know, or success rates, I guess, depending on how you define it you know, are, are, over, you know, 80, 85%. Um, you know, I would say, fortunately I've, you know, really uh, had pretty good success in my patients, but, um, you know, uh, I have not had to take a patient back to the operating room. We've had some patients have a little, some minor setbacks, but, um, they've been able to overcome that through some, you know, uh, physical therapy and, uh, changes in their exercise and, and workout routines. Um, but um, it's generally a very reliable surgery. I think the biggest risk is you know you know skimping on the release or trying to do you know be too cute with how you're you're going about releasing the fascia and getting an incomplete release or not recognizing associated nerve entrapment. Um, and I think that's where you see probably the highest rate of recurrence. Um, there is literature that you know has described that uh, patients who have like all four compartments involved and specifically involvement of the posterior compartments have less predictable or worse outcomes um, and higher recurrence rates um, you know it's it's uh it's again in my own personal experience um certainly those patients tend to take a little bit longer to get full resolution of their symptoms um when they have all four compartments involved um, And um, I also tell patients that typically the longer things have been going on leading up to the surgery, the longer it may take to get better. Um, But I've had a number of patients where like literally they've had the surgery and after they get over the, you know, temporary increase in discomfort that comes with just the surgery itself for the first week or two, um, they see a a very noticeable difference
0: and improvement
1: in their symptoms almost right off the bat. And they yeah. tend to be very happy patients.
0: That's that's exactly what you want to hear. Um, yeah, that's a sure. great thing. And you mentioned a few times here that you push uh, for some type of PT involvement as well post-operatively. What kind of things do you look for from a PT who's rehabbing one of your patients after a compartment syndrome? Is there like, are you a protocol guy? Are you a timeline versus criterion guy? What kind of things do you want your PTs to be doing, addressing, avoiding, that sort of thing?
1: Yeah. I mean, I know for my chronic exertional compartment center patient, I don't really have a specific protocol. I mean, I let them walk on uh, on their affected extremity right away. I do warn the patients, especially if I'm doing bilateral uh, lower leg compartment releases and especially in the patients who are having all four compartments uh, released simultaneously on both sides. I warn them like those first two weeks um, when you have both sides done at the same time, That can be a little bit rough, Um, but it's just like someone who has both knees replaced at the same time compared to one at one point and then followed by one at the other point. You know, you can take the argument of yeah, it's going to be a rougher recovery early on, but you're killing two birds with one stone and potentially can get back to normal more quickly without having to then come back to have the other side done. Um, But you know, once you know the two week mark, we check their incisions. Um, as long as everything looks good, I let them ramp up their activities after that first week. Because I do tell them, take it easy for the first two weeks and try to minimize how much they're up and about. To try to keep swelling to a minimum. As long as they look okay at the two week mark, I let them kind of ramp up as they feel comfortable. But I do tell them it's, it should be a slow, gradual resumption of activity. And a lot of times um, the, from a therapy perspective, you know, depending on how good the patient looks at two weeks, I sometimes may wait until the six week mark uh, to let them get into PT, just to once again, give them some time to kind of just get back to their ADLs uh, relatively well before they try to start hitting it hard. Um, but a lot of it comes down to more just sports specific, like, you know, what, what are they trying to get back into and, and trying to gear their therapy towards that. But proprioception is a big thing, uh, you know, I'm a big believer in that Um and um otherwise just strengthening and and like we talked about at the beginning uh stretching and the importance of stretching and um you know making sure these athletes have you know a good sense of how they should be stretching and you know what things they you know should be looking out for and and working on that maybe even their athletic trainers at school aren't focusing on
0: yeah i completely agree and i think all the points you just hit on are huge jake it amazes me how often I see PTs, though, who get so caught up in the end goal of the sport that they end up missing some of the basic steps along the way to get there. Um, Mm -hmm. A different patient example, uh, this individual was not compartment syndrome, but different injury to the foot-ankle complex, um, came to me after being discharged by a different physical therapist had 27 degrees of closed chain dorsiflexion mobilization on the affected side and over 40 on the unaffected side. And they discharged them, said nothing, nothing more that we can do for this individual, uh, that sort of thing. And it just let me, it just left me scratching my head. It's like, you know, we didn't even hit the basic range of motion requirements for functional activity. Um, so it amazes me again, how often you know, we miss those basic things like range of motion or how often we forget about the importance of having strength before we start jumping and landing and cutting and doing all the fun things. And that's something that I definitely see value in myself is, you know, I'm not a guru. I'm not the smartest person around. I really don't know everything. Um, And that's why I'm still trying to learn as much as I can. Um, But I found in general, if you hit the simple things really well, and you don't miss anything 9 times out of 10 you get a really good result out of it it's not mm-hmm. rocket science at least it it doesn't seem to be anyways
1: mm-hmm. yeah for sure
0: um and i i will say i've heard uh in the past different surgeons are kind of mixed on different manual therapy techniques um over the um uh the incision sites or after compartment syndrome i wasn't sure if you've heard anything about that yourself i've heard Mixed thoughts on any type of like soft tissue compressive manual techniques over incision sites for a period of time. I've heard mixed things on dry needling in the uh, lower leg because of the potential of getting a needle into like a neurovascular bundle um, in the lower leg. I wasn't sure if you had any thoughts on that.
1: Yeah. I mean, I. You know, I certainly want to make sure the incision is nicely healed before we start to do any kind of like scar massage or or anything like that uh, over the incision. But I'm not opposed to it. Um, You know, I don't really have like strong thoughts one way or another, you know, and same thing goes with the dry needling. I mean, I tell patients like because I get asked all the time about like dry needling, acupuncture, cupping. And I tell them, I say, listen, um, I'm not opposed to any of it. Um, I don't know that it's going to work for you, but, you know, you're certainly welcome to give it a try. Just make sure you go to someone who does it regularly and knows what they're doing so that you avoid potential complications and go to someone who knows more about it than I do. Because, uh, you know, make sure you do your research because they can oftentimes, I think, be a better resource to talk to whether or not that patient's condition is going to be something that responds to whatever it is they're looking to 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 check out um so i don't really have any like opposition to any of that as long as you know once the surgical wounds are healed then i really don't have any opposition to any of that um i mean i do feel very strongly about um something like graston technique more so for you know my achilles tendonitis patients my plantar fasciitis patients i'm a huge believer in that from the standpoint of the compartment releases you know listen, I can't imagine grass is going to hurt anything. Like it may help them progress. So I'm certainly not opposed to really anything, um, in their recovery. Uh, certainly, especially if the patient feels like it's helping them.
0: Yeah. Yeah, no, definitely. And I'll take that a step further. How do you feel about the compressive devices, like the, um, the different, like leg sleeve, compressive modality type things, like the pumps that squeeze, relax, squeeze, relax, has mm-hmm. like some of a massage effect. Um, I'm trying to think of a specific name of one right off, but essentially they're like these large boot things that go up the leg and compress mm-hmm. to help with like venous return, venous blood flow, lactic acid, all that sort of thing. How do you feel about something on the outside of the leg that's putting, you know, 80, 100 millimeter mercury pressure on the leg after something like compartment syndrome?
1: Um, you know, again, um, once the wound is healed, I'll let a patient try whatever they want. Um, you know, again, this is not something that I'm regularly telling a patient to do, but certainly if they want to try something like that, uh, they can, by all means, go for it. Um, like the nice thing with these compartment releases is there's nothing really structurally that has to heal. You know, it's really, and so my biggest thing is once that is healed, you can do whatever you want. Um, as long as it's making you feel better, as long as you feel like it's helping you. So if these devices are making a patient feel miserable, well, then my answer to them is don't do it because I don't think it's helping you to the extent that you should put yourself through misery to do it. Um, But certainly, um, you know, along the lines of like the sleeves and things like that, like I have no opposition to anyone doing that, um, you know, as long as they see benefit from it. But I do tell patients like, you know, as far as I know that, you know, I'm and maybe I'm just not well versed enough in these modalities, but. I don't know what the data is to show it. So I said, you know, the worst that could happen, you know, aside from maybe causing some increased pain is that it just doesn't do anything for you, in which case, you you know, don't feel like you need to keep beating your head against the wall and keep trying to do it. Um, But like I said, I really don't have any restrictions on what people, what modalities people try. Uh, And I do like to give the therapist kind of free reign to kind of utilize the modalities that they are most comfortable with and what they feel is successful in their hands, To help uh, a patient
0: get to where they need to be. Love that. Love that. Um, Jake, I feel like we've discussed a lot of different things here in relation to the surgical consideration, diagnosis of compartment syndrome, how it presents clinically uh, acute versus chronic exertional, the rehab considerations. I feel like we've touched on so much here. Do you have any additional thoughts or anything that we might have missed thus far today?
1: No, I think we we did a good job hitting all the bases. So, um, yeah, I think we're good.
0: Awesome, uh, Jake. For people who want to find out more about you or keep in touch with you, how can they find you? Are you uh, you're you're probably more of a MySpace guy at this point, right?
1: <laughs> well,
0: honestly, to to be brutally honest with you, I have
1: as minimal of a social media presence personally um, as one could have. Uh, you know, Facebook was my uh you know foray into social media when i but i got rid of it in medical school when i had to start studying for my board exams and i realized how much time i was spending on it as opposed to dedicating to studying and i said you know what i'm probably better off not going back on but certainly uh, like like we mentioned earlier i'm with the um the rothman orthopedic institute uh and and where i personally see patients is in the uh, the mainly the western suburbs of philadelphia um uh, but certainly, um, uh, you know, contacting us as a practice and, you know, w- whether it's something in the foot and ankle or lower leg, like we had discussed during today's segment or, you know, we have specialists, you know, that do everything, um, you know, from the from the toes all the way up um, to the neck and into the fingers. So um, if, if anyone's having um, any issues whatsoever from an orthopedic standpoint and um, uh, is willing to make the trip to, to the Philadelphia area. Um then uh you know give us a call.
0: Yeah, I will definitely vouch for you guys. I highly recommend you guys, especially you, Jake. I think you're very good at what you do. Uh and so far we're batting a thousand. So uh let's <laughs> let's keep that rolling, you know. And that's right. Um We'll uh, we'll link to your uh, Rothman page as well in the description. Perfect. So if anyone wants to check out more about you or look at your various research publications, there. I know you've done a few different things in regards to Liz Frank injuries and um, you know um, total ankle arthroplasty and that sort of thing. So we'll link to all of that below in case people want to check any of that out. Great. Uh, Jake, really appreciate your time today. Thank you for coming on. You're welcome. Thanks for having me, Dan. It's great to be here. Hey, everyone. I want to take a second and tell you all about AlleyRx. r x is a at-home food sensitivity and gut health testing panel. You order online and then receive and complete your test at home for food sensitivities. You then receive a custom report online through your member portal and then receive personalized recipes and supplements that are catered to you based on your food sensitivities. If this is something that interests you, you can check out the link and description in my bio, and you can use the coupon code, capital D, capital B, R-A-U-N, capital R-X. So d RX at checkout to save yourself 20%. Thank you so much for listening to this episode of the Braun Body Health and Fitness Podcast. If you liked this episode, please make sure to share it with a friend, subscribe so you don't miss any of our upcoming episodes, and leave a review. This way we can spread knowledge and motivation and help reach more people. Thank you again for listening, and I'll see you next time.